Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Beck. David, your mother and I have been reading what you've been writing, and uh, we are very, very concerned. Oh, shit. That and more. But first, hey, I wonder if you can remember your worst or maybe your weirdest injury. Broken bones, cuts and scrapes. Whether it was completely ridiculous or horrifying. Do you have a story about getting hurt or maybe surviving a catastrophic accident where you miraculously got away without so much as a scratch? Like Buster Keaton. <laughs> it's easy to pitch us your stories like those. You'll find everything you need to know about it at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Supergrass behind me now. We heard a music box style cover of the Risk theme song by Nervous Neil Smith and a bunch of the kids of Risk listeners. They're too young to hear the show, but they're old enough to yell the title of it. And all of that is in honor of the fact that we're calling this week's episode Growing Pains. Oh my gosh, has this theme <laughs> been on my mind and heart so much lately. You know, I, I do this one-on-one um, -on -one storytelling coaching and now life coaching over at KevinAllison.com. And this week... I had two really deeply moving and thought-provoking sessions with people sharing about things they lived through when they were very young, memories they still find resonant or that they still wrestle with. And people will sometimes say that, um, you know, it, it's like therapy to work with me that way. But one thing that's nice about the fact that it's not officially therapy is that I <laughs> can be so real with people about the work that I'm still doing with my own inner child. Oh my God, I will tell you in the past couple of years, I have had many an ugly crying session of meditations or... Active imagination exercises, 
all about showing love to the little boy in me that still gets triggered all the time when I feel rejected or left out or overwhelmed. <laughs> I mean, we're talking often. <laughs> But I am recording some guided meditations right now and hypnosis sessions for precisely that, for taking care of the little boy inside. Now, those are to listen to for me, for myself. And then I can share with my therapist and other people I love about what happens with all that work. And eventually, I want to make those kinds of recordings for others as well. But in these coaching sessions, I'm always reminded that in some ways it's just as much about the process of rethinking and sharing and getting feedback on our stories. It's that process journey of engaging with others in hashing it all out that ends up being ultimately more meaningful to the storyteller than the so-called final version, quote-unquote final version, of the story that ends up published or podcasted. And for all that, I, I truly could not be more sincere about those coaching sessions being just as meaningful to me. I'm always leaving those sessions telling someone, no, listen, you made my day too. And all of that is just a continuation of what we're all doing on the show here now staff storytellers and you the listeners so like i was saying today's episode is going to be three growing pains stories we're going to hear the first of two anecdotes in today's episode by david beck who i'm so glad reached out to us with a bunch of fantastic pitches i often forget to tell people to feel free to send us more than one story pitch when you visit risk-show.com slash submissions. We love lots of options. So with his first option, here's David Beck now with the story we call White Dodge Van. The exact moment of my childhood where my whole life turned black. I was in the fifth grade. I was 10 years old. It was February. It was a Saturday morning at 11 a.m. I had just gotten out of rehearsal for the trial of Tom Sawyer. I was playing the all-important role of Alfred Temple. Well, not really. He was the preppy boy from the city that Tom Sawyer gives a good old-fashioned licking to. And even at that young age, I knew I loved a good old-fashioned licking from another boy. <laughs> but also, at that young age, I knew that theater made me feel so alive because I knew that I was contributing to something greater than myself, and I loved that. It's the best natural high I've ever experienced. So after rehearsal, I carried that sense of accomplishment and belonging with me into that frosty parking lot outside the theater, and I walk into my dad's white Dodge van, which seems a little chillier than usual, step into the passenger seat, and he's smoking his Winston cigarettes, not at all unusual. But he doesn't drive us home right away, which is unusual. 
and he keeps driving us around the block. And I'm like, we're not going home? And then all of a sudden, BOM! David, your mother and I have been reading what you've been writing, and uh, we are very, very concerned. Oh, shit. You see, about a month before that, I had written my first ever play. And I played the main character, and my love interest was a boy. Yes, a boy. I went to school with name Tommy. And remember now, this was 1994 in the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio, and my school was called the Immaculate Conception, so you know what they taught at that place. The play I wrote involved innocent scenes with Tommy and I discussing what being gay means, and he was sort of seducing me into calling me gay, and the climactic scene involved a roller skating rink party, and we skated to the moonlight, you know, like that slow romantic dance song when they dim the lights on the rink and you hold hands with your crush. Well, Tommy and I did that. In the play, I mean, not in real life. No, not at all in real life. I mean, I, I wanted it to be in real life, which was why I wrote it in the play, because it was sort of my dreams, and I wanted to make my dreams real life. So it could have been real life, but it was just the play. And then we rented a hotel room in the play. Again, not in real life, in the play. We rented a hotel room, which, you know, what practical fifth graders would do when they want to have S-E-X. And then we did have S-E-X in the play, which I didn't even know what S-E-X meant in real life. Maybe in the play I knew what it meant. I was very naive for a 10 year old. <sighs> I just remember writing after capital S dash capital E dash capital X dot 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 in the play. And I thought, well, that is a good sentence. The narrator of the play, funnily enough, was the janitor of my school. Yeah. He was a man, typical white man in his 40s or 50s, you know, nothing spectacular. Uh, I have no idea why I made the janitor the narrator of the play. I couldn't tell you. It's not like he was Antonio Banderas or Ricky Martin or George Clooney. I mean, I wasn't sexually aroused by him at all. It was just my imagination. But of course, my parents were very concerned about that, most of all, when they read the play. Oh, and by the way, it's not like I said, oh, mom, oh, dad, here's my first gay play. Why don't you read it and then give me notes? Please, I want your honest feedback. No, it's not like I had that conversation with them at all. No, this play was tucked away. It was hidden at the bottom of my desk drawer. You know, underneath papers and math homework. And so this was somewhat of an invasion of privacy. But anyway, my dad asks me in the white Dodge van, Did something happen with the janitor? Did he touch you inappropriately? And I was like, no, it was literally just my imagination. And by this point, I am a blob of sobs. I mean, I can't even think straight, <laughs> literally. The van ride home, everything changed for me. Because during this van ride home, my dad gave me the sex talk. He explained to me what sex was, straight sex versus gay sex, and he talked about them both. Girls are pretty, boys are not pretty. And then he said the derogatory F word for being gay, and he said being that is gross. It's not appropriate for you to have those kinds of feelings. 
Now, I want to make clear that my dad never raised his voice on this van ride that never seemed to go home. I mean, he never yelled. It's almost like he was giving me tools of survival. He didn't reprimand me. If anything, he almost took pity on me, probably because I was a sad, pitiful mess. And towards the end of our conversation, he says, Oh, you're just young. You're impressionable. And even though I was both young and impressionable, I knew that neither of those had anything to do with this. Tommy is why I woke up in the first place. I mean, Tommy is the reason I felt things that I had never experienced until that moment. And it excited me. And that's why I wrote a whole fucking play about him. I mean, I wrote a whole fucking play in the first place because of this boy. Shouldn't that be cause for some sort of celebration? Well, no, this is not a celebration. And my dad made that very clear. Because a couple of weeks later, I see my dad in that white Dodge van reading books that he borrowed from the library called What to Do When Your Child Has Been Molested. I was like, oh my god, what did I do? I felt like Pandora's box had been opened and all this darkness came out. Just because of one gay play. That moment in the Dodge van, that's when I realized, okay. Gotta put my life preserver on. Can't tell the truth anymore. Gotta lie to get through life. That's when my addictive impulses just exploded. I did whatever it took to survive. And I often think how my life would have turned out if that conversation with my dad on that Saturday morning in the White Dodge van had, had been a little different.
This is Risk. This is Mama Cass behind me now. Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas. She recorded this song called Different for the 1970 children's movie Puffin Stuff, which I loved when I was a little kid. My family had the soundtrack album for the movie. And this song, I I played so much, I, I practically wore it off of the vinyl. And David Beck's story reminded me of a, oh my God, a moment in my own childhood. I don't know if these kind of magazines still exist, but in the 1980s, in any drugstore or grocery, there'd be these glossy magazines aimed at teenage girls, filled with photos of the teen heartthrob boys in the movies and TV. They had titles like Teen and Teen Beat and... Tiger Beat and Bob. Well, about a block from my house was Kemper's Pharmacy, and it always had all of them. So when I was 15, this show called Growing Pains, like today's episode, showed up on TV. Now, the show looked so stupid that I never watched a single episode. To this day, I've never seen it at all. But that year, suddenly, on every cover of Teen, Teen Beat, Tiger Beat, and Bob, there was this kid, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> and I thought, in terms of looks, at that time, he was my perfect guy. My dream boy. I couldn't imagine anyone. <laughs> More beautiful than Kirk Cameron. I so wanted to have those photos to look at in private and, well, (laughs) to get busy with. (laughs) But I couldn't bear to think of laying one of those magazines on the cashier's counter to buy. We had a David Crabb story about something similar called Porn, Porn, Porn. These weren't porn. They were just, you know, cutesy photos. But just the shame of being a boy buying a magazine meant for girls, I couldn't handle it. So I started stealing them over and over. So many. And not just from campers, from libraries, doctor's office waiting rooms, the open back of girls at school so many and this this went on for like at least two years now in case you don't know Kirk Cameron grew up to be a homophobic Trump supporting COVID denialist (laughs) just the worst a Christian fundamentalist so in my defense I do have to point out that with the release of the film Stand By Me my love for River Phoenix soon outshone my love for Kirk. In my storytelling memory, I have this concept <laughs> that I saw Stand By Me in the cinema 16 times, but when I say it out loud, I really would just rather not believe it. Because <laughs> it sounds downright deranged, but, you know, I guess, you know, also stealing dozens and dozens and dozens of magazines does too. In any case, I did see the film a lot, just like I pilfered so many images of River and Kirk, until I had what must have been about an inch and a half of magazine pages ripped out, barely fitting, 
in a manila file folder, all just photos of just those two fellas, and kept it under the mattress of my bed in my bedroom. And one day, (laughs) one fateful day, I heard my mom calling me into my bedroom. And when I got there, she had a cold, pale, critical look on her face. You know, one eyebrow raised and the manila folder in her hand. Well, I went even paler than she was. I had that freeze response, like I just slipped out of gear. She said, what is this doing under your mattress? She plopped it down on the bed so that it kind of flailed open with Kirk in overalls and River shirtless staring back up at us. I said, oh, that's not mine. I was keeping it there for Becca. It's hers. In a split second, I had figured I might just be able to bribe my 12-year-old sister into taking the fall somehow. But what I hadn't counted on was that Becca would be walking right past my bedroom door at that very moment that I said it. She poked her head in, saw this smutty pile, and said, Um, no, it's not. And walked away. (laughs) Now I was really out of ideas, you know? With my mom still staring at me like the Grand Inquisitor, I just threw up my arms and said, Well, then I don't know how it got there. (laughs) And my mom was so taken aback about what an impossible or nonsensical lie that was. She just kind of gave up. She just kind of frowned confusedly and said, Well... I suppose you should get rid of it then and walked out. (laughs) I'll tell you, it was certainly not the first time and it was certainly not the last time that my mom found something or witnessed something or asked something that amounted to the subtext, are you gay? So when I finally did come out to her when I was 18, once the final financial aid package for NYU had come through and the plane tickets to New York had been bought, I finally came out to her. But I couldn't believe that she sincerely insisted she had never once suspected it. (laughs) So maybe on that day, she was the one who just wasn't ready to tell the truth. I'll tell you something else. I did throw away most of those photos, all of the ones of Kurt Cameron. But to this very day, I still have in my memory crates with all my journals and letters and memorabilia from my childhood, I still have my favorite few pictures of River 
another troubled child. May he rest in peace. We'll be right back. We're back. Now, folks, in a little bit, we're going to hear another story by David Beck. We got a twofer from David in this episode. But first, we're going to hear a truly stunning story by Diaseline Gonzalez. Now, Diaseline shared an unforgettable story called Rebirth in the episode called Self-Esteem. And this new story is even more remarkable. She shares stories with so much heart and so much vulnerability. I have to warn you, this is a challenging story. Incidents of child abuse occur in this story. But we're so honored that Diaseline shared it with us. So here she is now, Diaseline Gonzalez, with a story we call Scared Girl, Strong Woman. was between seven and eight years old. I must have been six years old. He was playing around the house by himself, and he decides to go to my parents' bedroom. He starts opening the drawers, just like typical kids, and then he decides to flip the mattress, and he notices that there's a pair of scissors there, and they're open as if in the shape of a cross. That evening, he asked my mom what that was about, and my mom said, listen, this is to guard us from evil spirits. Don't touch my mattress again and don't touch the pair of scissors. This is serious. That night, my brother was in his bedroom, sitting up on his bed, grabbing the blankets very close to him, and he was freaking out, scared, thinking about all of these spirits that were floating around the house trying to do us harm, and also thinking, do I need the same pair of scissors in my mattress? This is a practice that comes from Santeria, which is a religion that combines Christianity, African religions, and Spiritism. My mom is a pediatrician, and she always said that as a scientist, she never believed in supernatural phenomena. However, she would do practices like the scissors under the mattress. At the same time, my brother and I grew up Catholic. We always attended a very small, very conservative Catholic school. And so we believed what they told us there. We believed in Jesus Christ and the hierarchy of angels in heaven. We believed in the devil that was a very real entity that lived inside of us. And the devil also had all the demons working for him. So all of this is to say that we had a mix of different beliefs that no adults were explained to us in a consistent manner. And so our child's brain tried to make sense of it the best way that we can. So ever since I was little, I suffered from night terrors and nightmares inspired by all of these beliefs. 
The very first nightmare that I remember was when I was around six years old. I remember waking up, lying on the side of my bed, and listening to these voices very close to my ear. Jocelyn, Jocelyn, ven con nosotros. Jocelyn, Jocelyn, come with us. And it was very scary. I would wake up covering my ear and asking them to please, please leave me alone. Another nightmare that was recurring that I used to have very often started with me walking in an open space. Sometimes it would be the park, sometimes it would be in the city, but it was always an open space and I was walking by myself. And then while walking, I would feel the urge to go to the restroom or to go inside. And so while I was looking for that place and walking, I would suddenly hear yelling behind me and screaming, there you are, we're gonna get you. And when I turned around, I see these demonic entities and these evil, evil people or entities or beings that were chasing me and trying to get close to me. Their arms were reaching and they were almost touching me. I couldn't see their faces. I could only see their silhouettes because they were cloaked and they were wearing hoodies. So it was impossible to see who they were. And I would go and just start running, running, and then turning back and running and asking them, please leave me alone. And they would yell and scream, here you are, we're gonna get you. And then I would enter the building, wherever I was looking, if it was the restroom or if it was a room. I would go and enter and quickly close the door. And they would come like almost there, almost there. I could always hear them and I could see them like rattling the doorknob. And then I would go crawl to a corner and just hug my knees and just be there and just simply asking, please go away, please go away. And then waking up completely covered in sweat, sitting on my bed. That was a very recurring nightmare that I had. So at night, I would suffer from all of these nightmares and I would be a scared girl. But during the day, I was just a regular girl with a family. I was actually daddy's little girl. Whenever family or friends and relatives would come and visit our house, we would gather around in the living room and my father would call me and say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I knew what to say because we had practiced. I would say, well, of course, I'm going to be your wife. I'm going to marry you. And he would laugh. Everybody would laugh. I would find it so hilarious. And I would laugh as well. And I would be really proud of that. My father would have this huge, big smile because, of course, he loved being the center of attention and being the one that I loved the most. The only one that didn't like it and didn't enjoy it that much was my mother. She would always be very serious. And I would ask her, are you mad at me? And she would be like, no, I'm not mad. Just simply go away. She would have the same answer whenever my dad would ask, so who do you love the most, your father or your mother? And I would go, well, of course it's my father. And he loved it. He loved the attention. But my mom wasn't happy with it. So growing up, I was very close to my father and very happy. I admired him. I always thought that he was the most intelligent person in the world. But as I get older and older, I could see some cracks showing here and there, some uncomfortable feelings perhaps. Another one of our special moments was getting showers together. It was a very special thing that we would do, you know, dad and daughter. I was around 
11, 12 years old one time when after one of these showers, I was in my bedroom with my towel getting dried and then I look at myself in the mirror and then suddenly I start feeling uncomfortable or, or maybe scared or even embarrassed and I wasn't sure why. And it was as if I was in the middle of an atmosphere that was very foggy very thick and then I couldn't see anything but only what was in front of me what my father would tell me because when you're young you believe everything that your parents say you take it as a reality and you don't question it at all however here and there sometimes my feelings my doubts would show here and there in between this fog but I couldn't see it yet completely for what it was Growing older then, more and more these cracks keep opening. When I was older, in my mid-teens, perhaps 14, 15 years old, one time the family was going to take a family trip and I am in my bedroom changing my clothes. I didn't lock the door because it wasn't needed. It was not really something that we did at home. But then suddenly, me in the middle of changing clothes, the door opens and it was my father. He was standing there in the doorway and I run to the bed and picked up my clothes and I say, hey, I'm still changing clothes, I'm here. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me and then walked away. I was the one that then closed the door and locked it. And ever since then, it became really scary to change in my bedroom. Ever since then, I started locking the door and having that dreadful feeling every time I could hear him approaching my bedroom. And I could hear him wiggling the doorknob, trying to open, and I would always be like, no, I am getting dressed. Go away. <sighs> I'm sorry, that part is really... <clears throat> so this whole time, I continued having nightmares and suffering from night terrors. I even developed insomnia. I couldn't sleep. So one night, I was around 14, 15 years old. I'm in my bedroom at night, not being able to sleep. The light was on all the time. I just didn't turn it off. And I'm crying. I'm crying really, really hard. Um, thinking about, of course, all these demons and, and these evil entities that were coming and they were conjured by people who hated me. Now, who hated me that much to conjure all of these spirits? Well, my bullies. In school, I was bullied terribly, terribly. It was so bad to the point that I really didn't like walking to school every morning. I tried to make it really, really slow. I would try to get to school just at the very, very last second before the bell rang. And then we'll come back home as soon as possible. So I thought that those people were the ones calling all of these evil entities and sending it my way just to harm me. And at the same time, according to the nuns, I had evil, the devil, inside of me because I gave in to temptations, and because of that, I was going to hell. 
So all of this is going through my brain and I'm crying, I'm crying really hard. When then I hear my bedroom door opening and there is my mom. I asked her, what is going on? What, what do you want? And she said nothing. She stepped into my bedroom and then she said, do you need an excuse to cry? Do you want me to give you an excuse to cry? Well, here it is. She said it just like that. She had a flip-flop in her hand. She used one arm to hold my arm, and then with the other arm and the flip-flop, she started hitting me, hitting me so hard all over my body. My legs, my thighs, my calves, my arms, my chest. And she did it for a good while. And then after she finished, she said nothing and simply walked away. That night, I started crying in silence, not making any noise ever again. But at the same time, I promised myself that I would never trust her again. When I turned 17 years old, I entered college. And shortly after, my parents divorced. I still missed my dad because I was very close to him and I admired him. But at the same time, I felt relieved he wasn't at home anymore because that meant that I didn't have to worry about getting dressed in my bedroom and locking the door. We stayed in touch. I would call him all the time and he would take me to lunch. One day we were having lunch in a restaurant and then he suddenly says, hey, those people in the table next to us are laughing because they think we're a romantic couple. Isn't that hilarious? And I replied, yes. But inside of me, I was like thinking, what is going on with these comments and these experiences? Why am I feeling like that? Why is this scary and uncomfortable? We finished lunch and we were walking on the street holding hands because, you know, that's what parents do. This is, I'm supposed to be very proud of this and very close to him. But then again, that's when this atmosphere, this fog was starting to clear itself and I was starting to see things and started to really feel things strongly. In my 20s, I emigrated to the U.S. to attend grad school. I still had the nightmares and the night terrors that didn't go away, but this time I was by myself. One night, my mom calls me, we were talking over the phone, and she says, hey, I was walking by your bedroom, your childhood bedroom, and I heard some voices, some like whispers saying something, and I couldn't understand what they said, but they were saying something about you. And it felt like there was an evil presence in there, what I did was I bought some plants, indoor plants, and I put it in your bedroom, and now they all cleared, and I don't feel it anymore. So for me, I took that as a confirmation of all the beliefs that I had growing up. Of course, yes, that meant that, yes, the evil spirits actually existed and they were, they were living in my bedroom. But I got sick. I got pain all over my body. My period stopped, and I had really bad cramps. I go to the doctor and they do all of the tests, blood tests, heart tests, and there was nothing wrong with me. The doctor one day goes and asks, hey, listen, nothing is wrong with you. 
Could it be that you're stressed? Are you stressed out? And it was almost like the floodgates opened and I started crying so hard. I cried so hard because it was the very first time that anybody had asked me that. And the poor doctor, she just stayed there listening to me crying for like a good couple of minutes. And then she was the very first one who asked me, hey, how about you go to therapy? And that's when I started behavioral therapy. It went really well. I started opening myself about all my experiences in childhood and all my stress also with grad school and with being an immigrant. They asked me about my family and I told the therapist, oh, my family is great. It's just a normal, it's a regular family. My mom, she's my best friend. And my dad, we have a very close relationship. And this is because I still believed it. There were those openings here and there that made me feel sad and mad and angry. But I still had that belief that this was pretty much a regular family. One day, the therapist said, okay, you know, you love your family. I've heard things that you love about your parents, but nobody's perfect. How about tell me one thing that you don't like about your mom and one thing that you don't like about your dad? And I took a deep breath. For the first time in my life, I actually thought about it and said, well, my mom, she kind of ignores me when I needed her the most. And she leaves me alone. But then also sometimes she would hurt me out of the blue, even physically. Do you need an excuse to cry? And my father, he's kind of gross. I don't like the way he kisses me and that he touches me. So I started realizing again and clearing this fog, this atmosphere, and even almost like stepping out of it little by little. There was one night I had that recurring nightmare about the entities chasing me and trying to get me. I was in a forest and I was running away and they were behind me and they were reaching out. And as usual, they were saying, we're gonna get you, we're gonna get you, there you are. And me just screaming and asking, please leave me alone, leave me alone. When suddenly when I'm entering the building, I turn around and I see the entity that is leading all of them. I see them close to me. And when I turn around, I was finally able to see their face, and it was the face of my father. And I just ran away, ran away, and woke up, and woke up sweating as usual, and I was screaming, and I was sitting up. My boyfriend was living with me at the time, and he asked me, what's going on? Are you feeling okay? What's going on? And that's when, for the very first time in my life, I said it. It was my father. <laughs> he molested me. It was him. It was him. <laughs> Sorry, I have, I brought Kleenex because I knew. <laughs> that 
that was me finally, finally stepping out of the fog and seeing things for what they were and getting over all of this trauma and processing what has happened to me. My long journey of therapy and healing started then. My realization was that as a girl, my brain was just trying to protect me and was just trying to make sense of everything and protect me by making up all of these stories and all of these nightmares. It was, it was difficult. The nightmares didn't stop immediately. But little by little, I was able to find myself and actually protect that little girl that was in me and went through all of that. There was one time in the nightmare that I saw my father and I turned around and I actually punched him, which felt great. And this is how, you know, my brain going through everything that the healing that needed to go through with those nightmares and with those dreams. And so, little by little, these nightmares started fading away and they dissolved until what emerged from that was me, a strong woman. basically gay porno and it was for my own sacred viewing pleasure but of course my mom snuck into my room and read it while I was at school one day now this isn't the first time that she snuck into my room and read my gay writing so I shouldn't have been surprised and I should have been more prepared uh, but I remember my dad waking me up one Sunday morning and saying David your mother and I have been reading your stuff and we don't approve. Now wake up and go to church because they'll tell you it's wrong. And uh, that was all he said about it. So, you know, I went on my, I went to church. I went on with my day. I was doing laundry, folding clothes in my mom's bedroom. And I was watching Touched by an Angel, <laughs> that TV show. And uh, my mom came home from a long shift at work. She was a nurse. And I remember she was in her scrubs and I was like sitting on the floor, you know, watching TV in her room and she sat down beside me and she was crying and uh, she had never brought up any like gay thing before in, in her life. And, and um, you know, it was always my dad who kind of confronted me. So I was very surprised that she would even bring that up because she's a very good denier and... 
She basically told me that it was, you know, a disease, and uh, she asked me, like, you know, why would you think that you're gay? Um, and I, I didn't know what to say, but she was interrogating me. Uh, this went on for, like, I want to say, like, 20 minutes, and it was so awkward, and Touched by an Angel was playing in the background, and we were both crying, and finally I said, well... I thought that I might be gay because, and those of you who know me know that I play the piano and I've always played the piano, so I said, I think I might be gay because uh, Elton John plays the piano and and Liberace played the piano and, and I thought like in order to be a good pianist you have to be gay. <laughs> what a load of shit! Uh, and my mom bought that at the moment, and, and she said, Oh, David, you don't need to be gay. Billy Joel's not gay. And then she hugged me, and uh, that was it. She packed my bags last night, free flight. Zero hour. 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. Such a timeless flight And I think it's gonna be a long, long time To touch down brings me round again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home This is Elton John behind me now, and we just heard a second story from David Beck, that one called Touched by an Angel. You can find David on Instagram and TikTok at DavidBeckNYC. Taj Easton coached and sound designed both of David's stories. And before that, oh my goodness, that jaw-dropping story called Scared Girl, Strong Woman, by Diaseline Gonzalez. Fascinating to hear the extraordinary ways that the psyche and subconscious can protect a child. Strange ways and how an adult can still so very much need to take care of that child inside. 
So thank you so much to Diaseline for sharing. David Crabb did a wonderful job coaching that story. And Taj Easton did a beautiful job editing it. And you can find Diaseline at diaseline.net. That's D-I-O-S-E-L-I-N dot net. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, we want to know what you like about our Patreon, what you'd like even more if we changed anything on our Patreon in any way, or if you're not a Patreon member, what might make you want to become a member. So there's two places you can check in with us about this. Patreon members will find a pinned post there called, What Do You Want? A survey asking all about what you think might make our Patreon even better. And for people who aren't Patreon members, you can find it over at the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook. You'll find a discussion on this same topic and you can chime in. You can also access the survey there and brainstorm with us right there on Facebook or on Patreon about we want more fans. We want all our fans to join our Patreon. And we want our Patreon members to want to increase their donations. So let us know what it would take to do that. And just know we really appreciate it. Now next week, Sam Firestein will be answering the question, where do you go when your face explodes? But that's next week, folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time It was not dark yet. Presently, Tom checked his whistle. A stranger was before him, a boy a shade larger than himself. This boy was well-dressed, too. This was simply astounding. His cap was a dainty thing. His clothes-buttoned blue cloth roundabout was new and natty, and so were his pantaloons. He had a sexy air about him that ate into Tom's loins. The more Tom stared at the splendid marvel, the higher he turned up his wiener. Neither boy spoke. If one moved, the other moved, but only sidewise in a circle. They kept face to face and eye to eye all the time. Finally, Tom said, I can lick you. Okay. 
So what I want you to yell, we're going to start practicing, okay? We're going to say risk. Risk. Okay. Can you say risk again? Risk again. Okay, we're going to go risk. <laughs> okay, but we're going to yell it. Can you go one, two, three? We risk it. <laughs> one, two, three. Risk it. N uh, just risk. Risk. One, two, three. Risk. Yeah. One, two, three. Risk. <laughs> Can you go risk? Risk. Okay, one more time. Risk. 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 Oh, that was a beep. Was beep. Okay, you did a great job just now. Can you do that again? One, two, three, risk it. <laughs> Let's do it again. Let's do again. One, two, three. Risk it. I, th I think that's the best we can do. Okay, thank you, baby.